Yes, I'm the token now. Real bright, call me the golden child. Look around, I'm the one that's chosen. Look around, yeah, I'm the token. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, and welcome to the She So Out of Order podcast. This is a discussion about learning to push through your flaws and your imperfections. It's meant to be controversial, funny, and safe in that order. We are so excited about today's episode, and I would love to introduce to you our host, Eureka The Truth. What's up, everyone? This is your girl. Eureka the Truth. Thank you for joining us for today's episode, Returning Citizen. Today's society make people feel like if you were incarcerated, you're not able to re-enter society and have a normal life. Today's guests will dispel that notion and show you that if you have willpower and determination, that you can have a life outside of the walls. So I am so honored to be able to introduce three wonderful guests the first guest we have is Miss Rylinda Rhodes, a Washington, D.C. native, mother of three, a change agent, and an activist, a fellow with Wayfinder Foundation, which is an activist-driven grant maker that invests in people who build power that change their communities. We also have the Jay-Z and Beyonce of gun violence prevention. So yes, I really had to dig in my pocket to pull out these celebrities right here. I would uh, like to introduce y'all to Mr. Sean Thompson L, who is from St. Louis, Missouri, graduated from the University of Illinois. He holds a Master of Arts in Criminology, Law and Justice with a Concentration in Violence Studies. He is a violence um, interrupter, in Washington, D.C., mental health counselor with the D.C. government. He also is a mentor, a big brother, and an uncle to so many kids in our urban communities. And we have his lovely wife, which is really is the superstar, Miss Lashana Thompson L. She is an author of The Wire, My Search for Redemption. She is also is a Washington, D.C. native as well. Um, she graduated with her bachelor's in human relations from Trinity University. She is currently pursuing a master's degree. She is the executive uh, director of the Wire Foundation. Mm-hmm. So I'm just so excited. And she also is the co-chief of violence reduction for DC Office of Attorney General. So we are so excited to have these two queens and this king this morning, and I just cannot wait to hear what they're going to say, and I just feel like everyone is definitely going to be blessed, and you're going to be able to be motivated to know that, hey, I can be like them when I grow up, so just keep moving forward. Um, So at this point in time, we're going to go ahead and just have um, Miss Rose to go ahead and just tell us a little bit more of what she got going on. Well, good morning, everyone. Good afternoon. Good evening. And I just wanted to thank you for um, inviting me to come out and have this conversation because I believe it's a conversation that needs to be had in our community. So thank you for that. Um, What I have going on. um, One, I'm blessed. I'm alive. And as long as I have breath in my lungs, I'm going to keep pushing. So in spite of any hurts, pains, um, life circumstances, I'm still breathing. So at that point, you know, I still have an opportunity to be the best version of myself. And that is my main goal every day to wake up and be the best version of myself. And currently what I have going on, I'm actually a, um, a new fellow in um, the Washington, D.C. We Aspire program, which is an entrepreneurship program for returning citizens. And what that program does is it uh, gives us the tools that we need to become entrepreneurs, because as a returning citizen, it's extremely difficult to come back into the community and to find um, employment and allow me to compete in an environment, you know, where is extremely expensive. It's extremely expensive than Washington, D.C. So I want to work. I want to be able to provide for my family. But because I have that, 
you know, that record, it makes it difficult to be employed. So there are a lot of um, organizations in the Washington, D.C. area that help people like me, returning citizens, that give us an opportunity to help us to be equal so we can compete because it is difficult. So that's what I'm doing right now. Um, I also am a new recipient of a small mini block grant in the District of Columbia. Um, I'm going to be putting on a team summit um, somewhere between. I don't have the, de the date set, but it'll be between now and the end of September. But it's a team summit. And the name of the team summit is CAP or No CAP, uh, Rap and Hip Hop and how it relates to gun violence. And I want to come together with these young adults between 13 and 24 and have some conversations about grief and loss. Because I have a 15 year old who has lost a number of friends in this city. And she comes to me and she's like, mom, I'm not Oprah. It's like I'm Oprah to my friends. You know, they don't really have a foundation of someone to talk to them about what's going on. And so that's what I have going on right now. All righty. All righty. Thank you, um, Sean and Lashana. What y'all have going on? Of course, I'm let my wife go first. As the <laughs> gentleman you are. Thank you so much, Melinda, for sharing your remarks. Um, I, I'm familiar with the Aspire program and that summit. I'll be looking forward to hearing more about the summit and looking forward to um, supporting you in any way that I can. Thank Again, you. Lashana Thompson-Hill, and I'm here with my husband, Sean, and a couple things that we have going on is we have both been featured in a book entitled Mind Over Matter, mm. and my chapter in the book is titled um, Do We Dare Love the Shooter, mm. and basically it's an essay about my experience growing up in D.C., um, being indoctrinated with violent values and choices I made, I made that landed me into prison and allowed me to harm other people to the extent that I did. And so um, Sean and I are both featured in that book that was published by Tyrese McAllister, who's a clinician in our city um, that's just doing great work to try to normalize mental wellness yeah. and also still working on my nonprofit organization whenever I have spare time. And I've been funded to facilitate conflict resolution workshops with girls in Ward 8 this summer. So I'm working on that. But my goal is really to invest in and support the younger leadership. Um, some of the young women that I mentor who also mentor girls in the community, my goal is to support them and allow them to facilitate the workshops and um, just help to organize it. And I'm hoping that it can continue to grow and maybe throughout the year we can go throughout, throughout different neighborhoods just teaching conflict resolution skills because one of the things that I know is that um, when we know better, we do better. And for conflict resolution is about developing a skill set. And unfortunately, some of our girls are being raised in environments where responding to conflict balance is the norm and in fact they're forced to do that and so right. we just have them alternative ways to handling conflict and I believe in them and I think they can do it because I was un I was able to unlearn my violent ways um mm -hmm. through some of the practices that I want to teach them and so I also am a restorative justice facilitator trained in violence interruption and um, one of my big goals in life I think is to just support other women that's doing the work to disrupt the pipelines to prison and jail for women and girls. So Sean says, I'm a philanthropist. And I'm like, yeah, I think in order to be a philanthropist, I got to be rich. So um, like my really my ultimate goal is to be able to support women that's doing the work because um, they're the ones with the passion, energy and the, the lived experience to get the job done. All right. Definitely sound good, Sean. What can I say? What you have going <laughs> on? Back off. What I got going on? Uh, <laughs> talk about, okay, uh, talk about my type. Okay, uh, again, I'm Sean Thompson. Uh, I'm married to this lovely and remarkable woman. Uh, what, what I got going on? Like I said, we're featured in a book, Mind Over Matter, by uh, Tyrese Houses. It's an anthology. Uh, I think my chapter is uh, hood trauma, undiagnosed PTSD. Uh, and basically, I, I, I wrote about that 
because I suffer from PTSD. And as a, a mental health clinician, I'm out a lot and I see the same symptomatic behavior that, that I displayed as a youth. Uh, a lot of this is learned behavior and, and, and undiagnosed like, like trauma. And, and I just think that, that our kids aren't just innately or naturally bad. I just think, man, they, they have been traumatized in the hood. You know, hood trauma, growing up, uh, seeing your brothers killed or going to jail or your best friend or even just a guy you see every day at the corner store get murdered or something and he's not there anymore. You've been going to this store for three, four years. He's always standing there, you know? Uh, and these things traumatize people and we don't have enough uh, uh, mental health clinicians in, in, in our community. And I just think, man, that, that, that is sad that our children have been traumatized so much and so deeply and we're not, we're, there are not enough resources for them. That's what I'm, that's what I got going on, man. Trying to push this mental health thing and, and go back to intervention. No. All right. All y'all are definitely uh, busy and we appreciate what you all are doing in the DMV area and really trying to get back to the community and making sure that these children have a chance to have a long life. Sasha. Yeah, I mean, I'm listening, sitting back and listening to you guys' stories, and I'm definitely impressed with, um, you know, how you guys were able to kind of turn beauty into ashes in in all of your stories. So um, starting with um, Sean and Lashana, what what sent you guys to prison? Like, what's what's the background story? What's the nitty gritty? And I hear you guys talking about, you know, kind of hood philosophy and, um, you know, basically having grown up in and having this like philosophy kind of passed down to you guys and from someone who might not have come from that environment but I do have a brother um, that's serving life in prison right now and when we got him he was about 15 years old and kind of already stooped you know in that philosophy how did you get how did you get there uh, how did I get there uh Violence is like normalized where we come from. Uh, I come from North St. Louis. My wife comes from Southeast DC, but, but the culture is basically the same, uh, that, that might is always right. Uh, get them before they get you. Mm. And it's a, a, a hustler's mentality, uh, between me and my wife, we've served, I think what, 45, 46 years for violent crimes. Wow. Uh, and it was just situational. Things happened. Like I said, uh, children have been traumatized. I had been traumatized and I had normalized violence. And I responded to the situation I was in with Basel. Unfortunately, a person died and I was sentenced to 25 years. I was maybe 17 years old. Mm -hmm. Uh it's you know it 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 it. it, it. <sighs> so Sean, let me ask you this: What did it what did it feel like? You know, you sitting there in the courtroom and you hear those charges, you know, come across from the judge, and you hear twenty five years. What did that moment feel like? I think I was like eighteen. I said I'm be forty two. <laughs> Get out. You did the calculation. Calculating <laughs> <laughs> stuff, man, and 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 and. You just go into survival mode, you know. That's basically what it was. I, you know, I didn't have the room to feel sorry for myself, but I did exactly what they said I did. Mm. You know, I was one of them guys that was me type of guy. So I had to take it on a chin, man. I think I was seventeen. I didn't get out till I was thirty-one. Wow. And what were your? You said your charges were second-degree murder. Man. Okay. And Lashana. It's interesting because we have a very similar experiences and Sean is almost like, well, eight, nine years older than me. So we almost come from a different generation, I think. Right. Um, so, yeah, I grew up in South and um, basically by the, by the time I was 19, I was deeply immersed in a life of crime and violence. The cycle of violence, I was just like into deep. I was. 19 years old, I was carrying guns, selling drugs, and doing everything that comes along with that. 
lifestyle. I end up taking the life of two girls one summer night um, in the neighborhood where I grew up. We were supposed to be a fight and things went beyond that and we pulled out weapons and two girls lost their lives and I, I was sentenced to 20 to 60 and I remember when I got sentenced to that was my thought. The first thing I did was to start to calculate my age mm-hmm. and how how old my kids might be by the mm-hmm. time because I had two young children when I became incarcerated. And so a part of me was like, I probably had never make it out. But then the other part of me was like, make it out like numbers. They were just like, it was a lot to wrap my mind around to think that I would be 19 going to prison and come home almost 40. Wow. Yeah. So that's pretty much was the story of my life. Um, got released. I've been home for 10 years now. And so I got released after my initial parole hearing, which is kind of a big deal because you have some people in prison right now who've been receiving hit after hit, which means they get have been denied parole time and time again, mm-hmm. all because, you know, they were sentenced under a certain era of time, under a certain set of guidelines. So to be able to make parole after my... It was a was a huge deal. And I got an opportunity to get involved in re-entry through my um, role at MORCA, the mayor's office on return to citizen affairs. I, I was home for like the first couple of years. And then I was able to start the wire women involved in re-entry efforts, which is basically an organization that I started along with a group of women that I was incarcerated with. Because um, for those who don't know, we don't have a prison system here in DC. And so everybody goes into the federal system, which wow. uh, deeper strain on families and individuals because you're so far away. You could be you can be in Waseca, Minnesota. You could be in Danbury, Connecticut, Hazleton, West Virginia, and the chances of your kid to come see you is slim to none, slim to none because the cost and the resources that it requires is just unbearable for families who are struggling. So. Yeah, I was able to start the wire when I came home and we've been able to advocate for other women to get released and also support other women in every entry process. And I also have a day job where I work in government prevention. Mm-hmm. And I have had the opportunity to study and employ the Cure Violence Global Model. And it's a basically a model that requires you to employ people who come from the neighborhood been impacted and hire them and pay them a living wage to interrupt and detect violence on the front end and prevent violence. So that's been a blessing to be able to be a part of that work and to be able to use my lived experience to make it. And just uh, thank you. Thank you for, yeah. you know, for your stories. Uh, Rylinda? Wow, you know, I'm, I'm really impacted by listening to uh, Sean and Lashonia. And it was something, you know, that you said that that really stuck out to me. You know, when you talk about being immersed in the violence in your neighborhood and and um, my experience was somewhat a little bit different. Um, I went to prison um, and I was convicted of manslaughter. Um, I was in an abusive relationship as a young adult and the violence it was still violence in my community, but it was a different type of violence. Mm-hmm. You know, it was dealing with domestic violence and also dealing with um, childhood violence. And in our community, these are also a different type of violence that people don't speak about, not just running around with, you know, the hustlers and the pimps and the hoes on the block, but the violence that happens within the household that doesn't get spoken about, which is what Sean also spoke about when we talk about the trauma and the PTSD, because we experience those things in our house and within our community, we're taught, you know, that we keep those things in the house or like the messages that we receive as children that we're to be seen and not heard. And if that's the case, then when do I have the opportunity to speak about things that are happening to me, whether it be physical violence, verbal violence, there's not a a space in our community or freedom to know that we can talk about those things. And so my experience was definitely uh, traumatizing. And I had, you know, two small children when, you know, I went to jail and when I got that guilty verdict, you know, my first thought was, you know, how long I was going to be away from my children and just the devastation 
of the whole situation and not having the support that you needed. Because even dealing with this domestic violence on the day that um, my situation happened, the police were called to my house three times. At that time, I was living in Prince George's County and they did not have any, um, you know, the rule was, uh, well, you have to go and get a restraining order, this, that, and the other. You know, the processes, they're just always so difficult um, in my opinion, as a black woman in our community, it's always so difficult. You don't have the resources or the information that you need. And then this situation, you know, is created. And then what do you, you know, of course, I'm going to use the knowledge that I have and that I'm accustomed to, you know, someone hurts you or you're, you're put in danger. You're going to protect yourself. It's self-preservation, you know, and that's exactly what happened. And that was the beginning of, this journey that that I've been on, devastating, but um, I just chose to take that energy. I refused, even though I was put in that position, I felt like I needed to have some accountability for the choices and the decisions that I made. And I made a commitment to myself that I wasn't gonna let that life go in vain in spite of how it got there, in spite of how we got there. I wasn't going to let that life go in vain. And that meant that I had to come back in my community and I had to do everything that I could to bring awareness and to teach women like myself and girls like myself to be true to themselves, to embrace themselves, to be kind to themselves and to really get to know exactly who they are in spite of this environment that we're in mm -hmm. and that our lives do matter. So that's why I'm here to be a change maker in my community, to say that, yes, these things happened to me, but guess what? I made a decision that I was not going to let that be the end of my story, that I get to decide who I am today and every day. And that no matter what the circumstances are, we have to make a decision. And once we make a decision, that decision and that choice is going to dictate what we do. Mm -hmm. So we do have power, even though we feel as if we're powerless. Um, just really quickly, um, Roland, if you don't mind sharing what was your charges when he was found guilty? Manslaughter. Okay. All right. Well, um, um, we definitely are excited that you were able to get out of that um, domestic violence um, situation. Unfortunately, it had to happen the way it happened. But, you know, we're so many women and men, because we forget to acknowledge the men that's going through domestic violence that don't make it out of those situations. So um, kudos, uh, my sister. Um, uh, so pretty much I know that all y'all have kids. Um, just kind of share what happened with your children. And then once you was released, what was your relationship with your kids after being gone so long from them? So for me, um, what being in prison, I was fortunate enough. Well, I don't even know if I want to use the word fortunate enough, but my uh, crime took place in Prince George's County. So um, that was a state you know, state crime. And so I wasn't in the federal system because I didn't happen in DC. Um, I, the event happened in Capitol Heights. So I was in Jessup, which is not that far from here. So I did have family support to have my children come up and visit me. So I was able to maintain some, um, the best relationship that we could in those circumstances. Um, however, when I did come home, of course, there was all this joy and elation about being home. And, you know, we started to bond and whatnot, but then the reality came in of all of the things that led to that, you know, not just me being in prison, but the time living in that environment that led me to go into prison. Mm -hmm. So the transition was very difficult for them and for myself, because of course, you know, I want to give and do every single thing to make up for all the poor decisions that I made. And, you know, and that's exactly what I tried to do initially. But as I started to grow and, and know more and to learn more, I had to, you know, get rid of that pleasing attitude and be real. And, you know, I had to have a conversation with my children and tell them, like, I love you guys you know, and be accountable for my choices, but I'm not going to be a rug. You know, mm -hmm. that is what, that was the past. That's who I was yesterday, but I'm here now and I'm going to stick this out no matter how difficult it is, but we're going to have to, you know, do this together. And the blessing was we worked together. You know, it was, it was, it was rough. It was rough. I'm going to tell you, it was rough, but 
I refused to, to quit. You know, I just embraced them. And as I learned things, I shared it with them. I allowed them to be angry. You know, I told my daughter and my son, you know, you have the right to be angry with me. I've made decisions that affected your life. You know, so you have a right. I allowed them to, you know, not even allow, just gave them the permission to be angry with their mother. It's okay to be angry with someone that you love, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's what I was able to do. And being able to do that is what uh, strengthened our relationship. And we're still working. We're still healing every single day. It does not stop. And how much time did you do, Rolinda? Um, I actually did a little less than five years. I actually appealed um, my conviction and um, it was overturned um, through the grace. However, well, no, it was overturned. Once it was overturned, my children were really struggling. Um, They were really struggling. And so I was offered a plea deal. I could have fought fought for my appeal and probably could have won. But my children were going through such a difficult time that I took that plea because it meant that the time that I served, I could come home. And that's what I did, not knowing the ramifications of taking that plea and what that meant on my record. Mm. Because, you know, my children were suffering and I did what I thought was best at the time. Yeah. I still, I break up a little bit because I'm, I'm frustrated because I wasn't knowledgeable of how taking that plea would affect my financial future. Mm. That's what hurts me the most about it, but it doesn't matter. I'm just, it's called radical acceptance. I'm accepting the pain of what that decision was, but at the end of the day, it empowered me to still get out here and kick ass and be the best person that I could be and create change in my environment. Amen. I love it. I love it. And hearing your story, it's inspiring. Um, I don't know you. This is, you know, the first time that we've had an opportunity to meet. And unfortunately, as black women, we are forced to be resilient. And I hate that word. You know, at some point in my life, I used to pride myself on being a resilient person. And now I'm like, oh, we shouldn't have to be resilient. We shouldn't have to go through what we go through. We shouldn't have to push you know, harder than everyone else. Um, and unfortunately, life deals us some cards, but God's grace, oh my God, God's grace is so sufficient. Talk about it, sister. And, Talk about it. And, you know, I, you know, we started this podcast with talking about how, you know, he t- takes beauty or takes ashes and turns, you know, them into beauty. And unfortunately, we have to go through some things, but the lives, <clears throat> now I'm getting emotional, but the lives that you know, you're changing and you're able to impact and you're able to go back and say, you know, be an advocate and listen, don't take that plea deal or here's another way to look at it or let's deal with the level of support that we don't get because we're just not knowledgeable and intelligent enough to even ask for it, you know? And so I'm thankful and grateful for the work that that you're doing to change lives. Absolutely. I'm doing it. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I just made a decision that, you know, in this world that I live in as a black woman, I mean, it's always difficult things that I come up against. And so I decided everything that I learned, everything that I had, all the challenges that I went through, I was going to use myself as evidence. I was not going to quit when they closed the door in my face. I would ask someone else, you know, I just would get on the street and say, how did you do that? Where did you go to get that? And then once I learned that, I just used myself as a guinea pig. Okay, you know, my creator made me strong enough to be able to tolerate and deal with this. So you know what? I'm going to take this experience. I'm going to learn from it. I'm going to ask every question, learn how to deal deal with the situation. And then I'm going to go back and I'm going to tell the next person, look, this is what happened. This is what they're going to tell you. But this is how you circumvent this. This is how you deal with that. So I use my suffering and the pains and difficulties that I had. And when I overcame it, I went back and told people, this is what yes. you need to do. Yes. Thank you. And we appreciate you for being um, vulnerable with us. And that I'm definitely know that that was a, a hard situation to go through. So thank you for opening up and, and sharing. All right. Well, come on, Jay. Thanks for the platform. Oh, no problem. Go ahead, Jay, Jay-Z and Beyonce. Let us know. My name is Sha. Her name is Sha. <laughs> but I, 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 I appreciate Sha. Listen, I, I'm I'm speaking that y'all gonna be billionaires, so you know, go ahead and receive that. Okay, so right you, now, call me Dick. We're gonna be Dick, man. <laughs> uh, 
and for, for real, uh, say the relationships with my children. I have two children. Uh, they like forty-two and thirty-two. Yeah, I'm an old man, also. Uh, my stop it. My relationship with my daughter is like stable. It's consistent. Uh, my son doesn't need. I haven't spoken to my son in a few years. Uh, like I say, it's based on trauma. I traumatized him. I went to school, went to prison when he was six. You know, I dropped him off from school and I never came and got him. Uh, growing up in the inner cities, I don't know what he experienced. I just could imagine growing up in my the neighborhood I grew up in, uh, being my son, certain expectations, negative expectations expected out of him. And, and he wasn't really with it. He's basically a good kid, never been to prison. Uh, he's married. I think I have three grandchildren. Uh, he just have issues with me that, you know, only time is going to heal, you know? Uh, so how do you deal with that? How do you deal with, you know, your son and, and the breach in relationship? Uh, let me be honest. I've been home like 10 years. Uh, maybe the first five or six years I was like, woe is me. I'm so very, 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 very sorry. But there comes a time when you got to man up, man. I wasn't there when you was growing up. I'm sorry. And that's that. It's not like I'm a deadbeat. I was in prison. I couldn't go to the gate and say my son needs me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like I, I, I got to a point where I'm not going to apologize to you every time I see you. And I'm not going to apologize to you every time we have a conversation. Uh, so he took that negatively. And I think we just like when I'm in St. Louis, we speak in passing. But, you know, it's not no. We don't argue. We don't fight anything like that. He's a lot like me. And he's not going to say anything. Well, I understand. He'll say something when he's ready. And I'm around. Uh, like I said, my daughter, my daughter, my daughter and I, we have a consistent relationship. But I am the world's greatest grandfather. I just want you to know. We believe it. You sound like it. Uh, uh, <laughs> Listen, when we at work, every time he's talking to his um, grandchildren, his bank account get a little less. They done uh, bamboozled him and he's cash tapping and some type of money. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Well, I had, for me, I had two children when I became incarcerated. Uh, they were, my son was about 10 months old. My daughter was three years old. So by the time I came home, they were young adults. And right now, my relationship with my daughter is still a work in progress because she suffered through a lot of trauma when I was incarcerated. Uh, She had a couple wicked stepmothers who made the trauma even more complex because the way that they treated her. So her trauma is really, really deep and it's really been a problem for us. Um, My son... Um, I think boys, well, boys, this is different boys and their moms. They just love their moms. He's just so compassionate and empathetic. He just, that I'm home and he's really not um, expressive about anything or like he's never really like been rebellious to or anything like that. Um, my grandkids, I, I do my best to try to be present for them, but I'm not really a babysitting grandma because I'm a busybody. And I just still and them kids cannot keep up with me. <laughs> and so, um, that's also added a challenge to me and my daughter's relationship. But one thing I do know is that I have never been a prison who have issues with their adult daughters. So I, I guess I just cut myself a little slack and I'm just hoping that things will work themselves out in time. But I know that um, we really have to deal with the deep trauma that we've experienced. Because these things don't just go away. Um, they have to be dealt with and you have to really heal those relationships and repair those relationships in order for them to grow up. And that's it for me, unless you have any more questions about that piece. Um, have you and um, your daughter decided maybe possibly going to family counseling to see maybe if some of those, those trauma might be resolved? It's interesting because we have been to a clinician together 
but she wasn't a psychologist. And in my opinion, there's a huge difference when you're dealing with this level of complex and chronic trauma. So we have went to see a, a clinician, but that it was it was not impactful at all. It wasn't helpful enough. Like you really gotta unpack that trauma. And as you all know on this call, who have um, background in mental health, it's like pulling an onion. Like it's layers and layers and layers to it. And I think it requires a psychologist who has a background in trauma-informed therapy, a not a clinician or a counselor or therapist. And that's just my opinion. And so we haven't done no necessary work that we need to do. We have done some um, healing work like around restorative justice in a circle format, and that has been helpful for us, but it's always been like with me and all my nieces and my daughter, or me and the women that I work with and my daughter, we haven't done anything one-on-one -on -one to the extent that we need to. Okay, well, I, I definitely hope that, you know, one day that you all can get into that one-on-one -on -one space so that this can be resolved. I mean, as we all know on this call, life is short and we definitely don't want someone to be in the ground and then the next person that's living got to say, oh, I should have could have would have. So I'm definitely um, praying for all of you all and hoping that one day that you all can build that relationship that you all need um, with your children because it's, it's important. Go ahead, Tom. And I wanted to say one thing about that too. We try and mediate and I just think it's important to point point out because again, none of those things deal with the mental health aspect or the or the and mediation was not effective for us either. Mm -hmm. So speaking of being on the other side, um, you know, of of this situation as the family supporting um, someone who's incarcerated. So this question is not on, on the list that we sent you guys, but I think it's important to, to touch. So um, when my brother went in, I was 20, I think. Yeah, I think I was 20. Unfortunately, he was 18. Um, and he went in for, unfortunately, um, killing a police officer. So he got 30 years, another 30 years, 40 years, and and... It's ridiculous. Um, but what would you say to family on the outside supporting someone who um, is on the inside? And I know for me, it's, it's, it's a strain on me financially, <laughs> you know, and, and, and there's also things that I assume that he goes through that he also does not tell us about. So, you know, what's the best way that we can support someone who isn't incarcerated and then, you know, help with the rehabilitation process, you know, if they're as blessed as you guys to come out on the other side? Hmm. So I guess I'll start with Rylinda. I'll just so say so let me make sure I understand the question. The question is how you would like my perspective on how family and friends on the outside can support um, a family member that's that's incarcerated. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, for me, I think one of the best things you could do is, you know, keep some kind of open line of communication, even if it's just letter writing. Um I still have people that I'm connected to that are still incarcerated. There are women that um, that are in Jessup that have, you know, a lot of time. And so we uh, we still write to one another to inspire and to encourage mm -hmm. uh, one another. I think that's one of the, the best things that can be done um, is making sure you keep that communication open with them. I, I don't I can't think of anything that would be more important than that. OK. Sean? I can piggyback off that. That's basically that all you can really do uh, uh, is keep a line of communication open and and just communicate. And you guys would never know how much a $2 card would call, would, would make a guy feel if it just comes through. You don't have to write much on it. You can just like, I love you and send the card. You That would make a guy's day, like, you guys don't know, like, a mail call, that is one of the most depressing parts of prison, because it may be 200 men standing there and only 15 people get letters, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. wow. So, like, 
like like just a car, uh, 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 a line of communication, because it's not always financial. Sometimes, uh, 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 you know, is you being a dire straits financial. You just mostly they just need some communication, and 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 someone knows that they love. Them. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's good. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I'm about to be out of order. Um, I definitely have been guilty of not doing that. Um, I know a couple of people who have gone to prison. I've had an uncle that stay in and out of prison. I mean, right now he's doing well, got his own um, truck and drive trucks for a living. So I'm definitely proud of him. Um, but I haven't seen him probably in like 20 years. But each time that he went to jail, um, because of the nature of what he went to jail for, I'm like, I'm, I'm not writing you like what the, what the heck was you thinking? Why would you do this? You know, you know better. This is not the kind of household that you were um, raised in. Um, but just to hear that perspective um, from you all, you know, that definitely makes me, you know, check myself and some people that I know that are still in, you know, I may go ahead and um, reach out and start writing them because I didn't realize how depressing that is just to realize there's 200 people in only 15 people is getting something. So thank you all for, for sharing that. Absolutely. Um, so we're going to go ahead and move it along because I, I want to do what I promised and get y'all up out of here. Um, what was the first, we got two more questions for y'all. So the last two is, what was the first thing that you did once you got out of prison? And then the last question is, what advice would you give to these little young knuckleheads that has decided they want to live a life of crime. You got me? Uh, first thing I did when I got out of prison, I took a bath, man. I felt the tub up with bubbles and all that stuff. <laughs> so in the tub. See, just think about it. I, I've been taking showers for 15 years. I told y'all he was a pretty boy. I told y'all. <laughs> <laughs> the same. I'm an undercover pretty boy. Everyone doesn't know that. Okay. <laughs> but like I did was took a bath and like I fell asleep in the water. Let the water got cold. I built it back up. <laughs> I'm just saying that's the first thing I did. Uh, advice. Advice for the youngsters. <sighs> there are always options. You know, and crime is unnecessary. Uh, I hear so much and so often people validate the things like you got to do what you got to do. There's no justification of being a criminal, man. Right. You can't justify. There's no right way to do wrong, bro. So doing what you got to do, all that, I think those are cop outs. Uh, I just encourage the youth, man, you got to want your conditions to be better and, and, and Man, I know it's rough, though. Like, you know, to me, education was my way out. And a lot of people don't believe in education or a trade or a skill set. But you got to do something. You got to skill. You got to get an education. You got to learn to do something to be marketable or or you're going to get swallowed up. Mm-hmm. Really quick, Sean, like, tell us what you, how how was you living when you got out of that meeting? Like um, when you went to um, Chicago, where were you staying at? It was for like four years. Uh, when I was working on my street, uh, I couldn't pass the background check to live in a nice neighborhood. They tried to put me above the carryout. And, and I wasn't going to live anywhere where I needed a gun. And I felt if I lived above the carryout in, in west side of Chicago, I would need a gun. So uh, I just went to, to, to student housing and told them I was homeless. And they gave me an apartment. I lived there for like four years. I owe, owe a whole lot of money about that. But I'm just saying, I wasn't living in the streets. But you know, I, 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 it's about sacrifices. I was on a student plan, meal plan. I lived on campus on a meal plan, ate in the, ate in the, ate in the cafeteria with the kids and all that stuff, man. It's about sacrifice. Uh, a lot of people are, 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 are not ready to be that hungry and for a guy like me, that was very, very humbling, you know, and, you know, it's all about sacrifice and, and hard work. And what would I tell the kids? No shortcuts, man. No such thing as shortcuts unless you hit the lottery. 
unless you hit the line before a million dollars, there ain't no shortcuts. It's do hard work and perseverance. You got something to say, baby? She looking so good right now, y'all. She laid back. <laughs> First thing I did when I got out of prison was I went and ate some shrimp and I went and got my nails done while I was waiting for my brother to pick me up. I went and got a, a manicure and ate some shrimp cocktail. Um, right. Ain't nothing wrong with that. Um, <laughs> advice I would give to the youth is find your purpose and find your talents and don't get so immersed in like the culture of violence with the music and social media because that's not real. But doing time in prison, like that's that's real. Mm. And it's an experience that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. It's 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 the type of torture that you can't imagine. Mm, mm, mm. So invest in getting to know themselves, finding their purpose, finding gifts and talents. And stop getting so wrapped up into what they see on social media and what they hear in the rap music and what they see in the rap videos. That's it for me. Um, For me, first thing I did when I got home was uh, I surprised my children and just, you know, I spent my whole day just, you know, with my daughter and my son. Um, which was amazing. Um, and the message that I would have for the young knuckleheads is kind of twofold. The first one is you can change your mind. You can change your mind. You know, they have these thoughts of what they see and their peers and these things. And they think that, like they say, joning or batting, uh, bidding on one another is a rite of passage. Oh, I'm joning, I'm joning. I said, no, what you're doing is you humiliating someone and you're getting pleasure for it. I said, but that's not a rite of passage. Guess what? You can change your mind. You don't have to do that anymore. I want them to understand just because you think something or a feeling comes, you can redirect that. You can change your mind. And secondary, I want them to be kind to themselves. I want them to be kind to themselves. If you hurt, it's okay. You can, you can hurt and still produce. You can be angry in the right way and still produce. I want them to be kind and embrace their true selves so they can see their true value. When they realize their value, it's going to empower them and nothing is going to stop them. That's good. Thank you for that. My pleasure. Go ahead, Well, thank you guys so much for joining us for this episode. Hopefully it blessed someone. Hopefully it encourages someone. Um, hopefully it pushes someone into their next level. I love what both of you all said is to find your purpose, find your path, pursue the things that set your soul on fire. Um, one of my favorite quotes that I always use um, and something that God showed me is you are the only you that can stop you from all that God has designed you to be. And the common denominator is you. And so hopefully people get from this episode that no matter what hand life has dealt you, you can recover. Absolutely. We're the evidence. Yes. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Uh, Really quickly, um, just so that um, people that want to support you all um, show up to some of the events, um, where can they follow you at on what social media platform? Well, for Rylinda, so um, I have an IG page. I, I'm not really big into social media, but I do understand that this is a, a marketing tool that I could reach out uh, to my uh, to the people that I'm trying to reach. So you can reach out to me. Um, I'm on IG at Bipolar These Nuts um, because I am the evidence that we do survive. Uh, as well, in the future, I'm going to be launching my um, natural hair care and self-care line, which is basically a natural hair care and soap making um, to inspire you to love yourself and to be kind with yourself. And so you'll be able to find that on um, Bipolar These Nuts on IG. I just followed you. Thank you. 
I love that, Belinda. Can you be my new best friend, please? Absolutely, sister. <laughs> I'm with these nuts. Absolutely. I love Absolutely. that. Uh-oh. Y'all out of order now. Y'all out of order. <laughs> hey. So, so please text me her phone number. That's my new friend. <laughs> Bipolar D's, baby. Um, Bipolar D's. She's out of order. She's out of order. My Don't get it twisted. We survive. We live. We, we thrive. We embrace mental health. And Man, they better watch out. We are empowering our community. We are on our way, America, the yes. world. Yes, I love it. Thank you so much, sis. I'm looking forward to having you come out and talk to girls in the very near future. Um, I'm there. I'm there. My my Facebook name is just Shauna Thompson Hill, and my Instagram is Shauna Bay Seven. It's spelled S H O N I A. And they can get your book. I just looked it up. They can get your book on Amazon. It is called Through the Wire, My Search for Redemption. It's $14.99. And even if you don't buy it for yourself, buy a copy, give it to a youth that you know um, could, you know, be inspired by it, whether they live a life, you know, in that environment or not. I definitely want people to read this book, share it, buy it, support it. Thank you, Sasha. Absolutely. Sean, what a fine yet. Right now. <laughs> what a fine yet, Sean. Find me with my wife. What do you mean with my wife? <laughs> oh, you, oh, y'all share a face. I didn't know y'all share pages. <laughs> I, will, find I ain't going to be far behind. You find her, you find me. <laughs> Listen, Sean said he just show up and kiss babies and shake hands. Yeah, you already know. What's your Instagram name? Sean Thompson Neal. Oh, his Facebook name is Sean Thompson Neal and his Instagram is Sean Thompson Neal. So original. I'm just saying that for my mama name. My name is Sean Thompson Neal. And you can also uh, look up The Wire and donate to The Wire. It's www.thewiredc.org. All right. We definitely will be supporting that. Um, so again, we're going to go ahead and wrap up. We thank you all so much for taking time out of you all's business schedule, out of your vacation to come and, and talk to the people. I definitely hope our listeners are inspired and know and know that it's not how you start the race, but it's how you finish it. So we thank you all so much and we want for everyone to definitely have a good day. Make sure y'all support these two queens and Shining on them, yes, I'm the token now. Real bright, call me the golden child. Look around, I'm the one 